Today, President Biden popped on his signature aviator sunglasses. He walked out to the South Lawn. He took off his jacket and essentially gave the White House version of a pep rally. Exactly four weeks ago today, I signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. A single most important legislation passed in the Congress to combat inflation and one of the most significant laws in our nation's history. We're going to lower prescription drug costs, lower health insurance costs, lower energy costs for millions of families. I'm going to take the most aggressive action ever, ever, ever to confront the climate crisis and increase our energy security. We're going to build a future, the future, here in the United States of America with American workers, with American companies, with American-made products, and after years of some of the biggest corporations in the United States paying zero in federal income tax, they'll now have to begin to literally pay their fair share. Making progress in every country as big and complicated as ours is difficult. It is not easy, and it never has been. But I know with conviction, commitment, and patience, Progress does come, and it's coming now. As much as the White House chalked up the timing of today's event to the four-week anniversary of, the Biden, of Biden signing the Inflation Reduction Act, a four-week birthday party, it's pretty obvious that today was all about the midterms, showing exactly how much Democrats have delivered for voters. Across the aisle, though, Republicans had a little bit of trouble with their midterm messaging. This afternoon, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a bill that would institute a federal ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, first of all, Republicans have literally spent decades saying that abortion was a state's rights issue. When they talked about Roe, the sentence almost always ended in send the decision back to the states. But now, 55 days before the midterms, Senator Graham has decided to shift the Republican Party line on abortion rather dramatically. Here he is last month. I think states should decide the issue of marriage and states should decide the issue of abortion. With Chuck Schumer in control of the Senate schedule, there is no way this federal abortion ban is going to get a vote before November. It is purely messaging for the midterms. But don't take my word for it. Here is Lindsey Graham himself. If we take back the House and the Senate, I can assure you we'll have a vote on our bill. If the Democrats are in charge, I don't know if we'll ever have a vote on our bill. Democrats heard that and were like, "Okay, there's our ad for the midterms. Just use the whole thing. Sixty two percent of the country supports access to abortion. And what makes Senator Graham's move today all the more bonkers is that it doesn't appear to have been coordinated with the rest of his party. Here is Mitch McConnell, the guy who runs the Senate for the GOP. Here is Mitch McConnell reacting to Graham's new bill this afternoon. I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. State level. McConnell knows that Senator Graham's maneuver here keeps abortion front and center for Republicans at a time when that is almost certainly not good for them. A majority of Americans disapprove of the Supreme Court's decision to overrule Roe v. Wade. And after the Dobbs decision, the fight over abortion rights has caused women to register to vote in just unprecedented numbers. Because, depending on who controls Congress, something like Graham's abortion ban could become less a messaging exercise and more a legitimately considered piece of legislation. Every single Senate seat matters this election year. If Republicans can get a net gain of even one seat this November, 
they could bring his bill to a vote. And tonight we have an important Senate primary race for one of the purple state seats that Republicans have a shot of picking up come November. Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan's seat in New Hampshire. To give you a sense of how close that race might be, Hassan won her last race for that seat in 2016 by about 1,000 votes. 1,000. Hassan has been running on all sorts of things, but her big push on abortion is evidence that she thinks a pro-choice message is going to work in a purple state. Now, Hassan's race tonight is not the one that the country is focused on. Her primary is basically a sure thing. The race to watch tonight is the primary for Hassan's opponent this November, the official candidate for the Republican Party. And both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are spending a ton of money to try and sway tonight's race. This is the candidate the Democratic Party this is the candidate the Democratic Party is trying to help win tonight. The video I'm going to show you is actually two years old from when he ran for office in 2020, but I think it really captures his essence. General Don Balduck. I didn't spend my life defending this country to let a bunch of liberal socialist pansies squander it away. I'm Don Balduck. I approve this message, and I'm asking for your vote. Again, that ad is two years old, but... General Don Bolduck against the liberal socialist pansies. This is a guy who falsely claimed there were microchips in the COVID vaccine and who called New Hampshire's Republican governor a Chinese communist sympathizer and who, of course, insists that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. He is out there. And that is what Democrats are betting on here. A PAC associated with Senate leader Chuck Schumer has poured $3.1 million into ad spending in the past two weeks to try to get that guy, General Don Bolduck, to win tonight's New Hampshire Republican primary. And a Republican PAC has spent about $4.5 million in the same amount of time trying to make sure that that does not happen. Both parties see Bolduck as the weaker Republican candidate to face off against Maggie Hassan in November. And that is why National Democrats want Bolduck to win tonight and national Republicans do not. Polls closed an hour ago, and we are awaiting results. The past few major polls of tonight's primary race put Bolduck ahead of the rest of the Republican pack by somewhere between 10 and 20 points. So General Don Bolduck may actually win this thing. But is this playing with fire? If Don Bolduck somehow beats Maggie Hassan and gets that Senate seat, he would make Lindsey Graham and his 15-week abortion ban seem moderate, quaint even. And even losing just that one seat, well, that could give control of the Senate to Republicans. Oh, and did I mention the polling group Data for Progress did a hypothetical head-to-head of Hassan and Bolduck in July, and Hassan was only up by four points. The margin of error was three points. So, yikes. Now, this part is not yikes. Joining us now is Jen Psaki, the former White House press secretary for President Biden. You know her well. She was during the Obama administration. She was a spokesperson for the State Department and the White House Deputy Communications Director. She is immensely talented. And now she is joining the MSNBC family as an MSNBC political analyst and host of an upcoming show on Peacock. Jen, welcome to 30 Thank Rock. you. We are so thrilled to have you. And it you. is so great to be here with you tonight. <laughs> I'm so we're, excited we're to be buds. here. It's we're finally here. happened. We yes. made it. We're here together. Um, we are all super thrilled and delighted. I'm so honored to have you on set with me in one of your first appearance. I am honored and thrilled to be here and so excited with you. Um, 
I really want to know what you think of what the Democrats are doing here, because I've talked to a lot of Democrats about the strategy mm-hmm. of picking the craziest, wildest, most seemingly beatable Republican in a key race. And you get mixed feelings about it, right? Yeah. On one hand, it's like, well, this is the strategic way of going about things. And then on the other hand, you have some people who issue cautionary words, which is, what if these guys actually win? Yeah. Where do you sit on a strategy like the one employed in New Hampshire? Well, I think what you're hearing, and I talked to a lot of Democrats too, of course, is it's really risky. I mean, what they're doing is risky, not just in New Hampshire, but other states in the country. Now, New Hampshire, the primary is so late that in that state, they will tell you, as I'm sure they have, that they also need to start to shape uh, Chuck Rocha if he is the nominee, because that's how they'll run against him. He's a member of the establishment, and that's what they're doing here. But they're also doing this in other states across the country. Now, what's also true is that if they uh, can elect, they can nominate the extremist members of the extremist Republicans and potentially win those seats, they prevent Kevin McCarthy from being the Speaker of the House. They prevent Mitch Mitch McConnell McConnell. from being uh, the leader in the Senate. And to them, that's the way you protect gun safety. You protect a woman's right to choose. And that's all on the ballot, too. So what you're seeing here is everybody is playing a game of three-dimensional, five-dimensional chess. The Republicans do it, too. Mm -hmm. The Democrats are doing it. But you don't really know how it's going to turn out. And that's what's scary. Well, I think it's scary. You know, and you see it not just in New Hampshire. You see it in Pennsylvania, where Doug Mastriano, similar to General Bolduck and his sort of inflammatory rhetoric, is running just a couple points behind Josh Shapiro. And it it brings to mind the sort of state of affairs when it comes to the GOP, that these kinds of people, these kind of fringe candidates, hold a very real shot of not only becoming the sort of standard bearers for, the, bearers for their party, but elected officials in Congress. I suppose this is a strategy, high risk, high reward. Yes, I, no question. I got to ask you, how you think of these midterms right now, sitting as, you know, where we are less than 60 days out, uh, where he, we see this sort of back and forth among Republicans on abortion, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, they're having a hard time with this. And we talk a lot about abortion being an animating factor here. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's actually changed the way we think of midterms as classically a referendum on the sitting president or a check on his power. I want to Nate Cohn in the New York Times brings up this really interesting point, which is usually the midterms are a check on power. And yet the biggest piece of sort of powerful policy change has come as a result of the Supreme Court decision Mm -hmm. on Dobbs. And in many ways, these midterms may end up being a referendum on Republican power more so than Democratic power. Do you see it that way? Absolutely. And that is remarkable if you think about it. I mean, if you look back on the NBC poll from back in January, Democrats were not that into the midterms. You know, (laughs) they just weren't that into it. They were not thinking they were going to participate as many. It's gone up 20 percent by 20 percentage points, almost the excitement and enthusiasm for participating. That is largely related to Dobbs, largely related to women across the country, young women across the country, and even men being scared of a woman's right to choose being taken away from them. 
The other truth is that when you're the party in power, and I have sat in White Houses where you're the party in power, it's almost always a referendum, to your point, because people are looking at whether they're satisfied with how things are going in the country. That's hard to run as a referendum against you, right? Right. It's much better when it's a choice. But to your point, it's largely flipped now, where people are saying the anger is in the part is is among the, the the members of the Democratic Party, which is the party in power, which is so rare for that to be the case. People are enthused, enthused they're engaged, they want to get out and vote, they want to participate in the process. And many Democrats, women, independents who were not that excited were going to be in their jammies on election night uh, as of a few months ago. Are, they don't want their rights to be taken away. Right. And that has been a huge uh, factor that's changed the dynamics. It's the almost like a recreation of the weather patterns when Trump was president, right? Americans, vast numbers of Americans feel like basic freedoms are being infringed upon. And oh, by the way, Donald Trump is still the, pre- in some ways, not, he's not the president of the United States. In his mind, he may be. But in terms of his dominance over the news cycle, the yeah. multiple swirling investigations have made him a figurehead in, yeah. in, in the Republican. Republican Party and in national politics. Well, nothing's more of a driving and an uh, excitement factor like Donald Trump for Democrats, right? I mean, they love to be opposed to him because they are um, independents. Many are, don't want to see uh, another reign of Trump. And uh, the more he engages in the race, the more he puts himself out there, the more it's a reminder of what's at stake to people. And having Trump on the ballot is a hugely energizing factor in a lot of these races. I'll also say, since you asked me broadly about the midterms, that um, while, while I think a lot of Democrats are feeling better, as they should, yeah. there's a long way to go here. And uh, you know, if the, if the election were tomorrow, I think the House would be a big uphill battle. That, that would be a bit of a leap. The Senate, more of a toss-up. Uh, but there's different dynamics in each of these races um, that we should be paying very close attention to, too. Well, and no doubt the Biden White House is looking at all of the cross-currents, right? On, on certain, I mean, there's a reason that Joe Biden was out there celebrating the four-week birthday yes. of the Inflation Reduction Act mm-hmm. and his aviator sunglasses because they know they have to offer something else mm-hmm. to the American people. They can't rest on their haunches yeah. and let Trump and Dobbs do the work for them. But there's also storm clouds on the horizon for them, right? Like we have an inflation, inflation is not budging. And then there's, there's talk of a major rail strike that could happen as soon as this Friday. Both of those things are so huge and so deeply felt by the American consumer. Where do you think the Biden administration is at this moment in time as they look out at the landscape before them? Yes. Well, I talked to a number of of my former colleagues today, and you're always juggling a lot of balls in White Houses, right, to put it mildly. So there's but there's been a team that's been working on uh, preventing and addressing this potential rail crisis for some time. And you can see what they've been doing over the past couple of days is engaging with union leaders, engaging with business leaders. Uh, Secretary Walsh is going to be out there trying to get everybody to come to an agreement because they know it would have a huge economic impact. Uh, They don't want to see that. They don't need that headache right now to state the complete obvious. Um, You know, what I would also say, though, from talking to a number of them, of my former colleagues today, is they feel pretty good about a couple factors in the economy, gas prices specifically. And while there's a lot of economic data out there, gas prices is something people are experiencing on a daily basis. And if you look at the data and how it kind of overlaps, as gas prices go down, 
the president's uh, approval rating goes up. And they're watching that closely as well. So, yes, they have to prevent crises. That's what you do in a White House. You've got probably teams of people in rooms working on this. Um, but they feel good about, uh, you know, the fact that the president could rally a bunch of people today. Um, and, you know, I think they're hoping they can prevent a crisis with the rail. Yeah, it's tricky, though, right? Because this is a union issue, too, and labor matters to Democrats. It is a very careful needle they have to thread. And the downside is extraordinary. Although it's only Tuesday, who knows what happens? Lots can happen this week. So you, many things. You know it well. Yes. One day is a year. Uh, Jen Psaki, the former White House press secretary for President Biden, current, I love saying this, current MSNBC political analyst and host of an upcoming show to be named on Peacock. Thank you, my friend. Thank Welcome you. to the Great building. To Come back anytime. I love to see you. Up next here tonight, we are learning that Donald Trump's actions before, during, and after January 6th are meeting with an extraordinary amount of scrutiny, courtesy of not just the Congressional Committee looking into the Capitol insurrection, but also the Department of Justice, which is operating at full throttle this week. We will have more on that. Stay with us. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Well, we have all been trying to sort out the daily, almost hard to believe developments in the, let's call it the Trump and the curious case of the top secret beach club documents. Another investigation into the former president has been moving forward, mainly out of public view. That is, of course, the January 6th committee investigation in the House. The last public hearing the committee held was nearly two months ago. Today, the committee held a four-hour closed-door retreat at which it discussed the possibility of another hearing, its upcoming report, and testimony from potential witnesses. Chairman Benny Thompson said the committee is discussing September 28th, two weeks from tomorrow, mark your calendar, as the target date for the committee's next public hearing. This four-hour meeting comes one day after we learned that the Justice Department had issued approximately 40 subpoenas in the last week and its ongoing probe into Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Chairman Thompson was asked about those subpoenas and the committee's cooperation with the DOJ earlier today. Talk about the committee's cooperation with the Justice Department. Is that evolving at all, given the DOJ is more active uh, around subpoenas, for example? We have a meeting on Friday. Uh, I plan to bring it up. Uh, I think now that the Department of Justice is being proactive in issuing subpoenas and other things. 
I think it's time for the committee to determine whether or not the information we've gathered uh, can be beneficial to their investigation. So keep an eye out for potentially more cooperation and sharing of information between the Justice Department and the January 6th committee. Also today, another member of the committee, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, said on MSNBC that a criminal referral from the committee to the Justice Department was looking more and more likely. DOJ has, I think, a pretty fulsome investigation going. That's going to be where this baton, so to speak, is handed to. Not by us. We may have a criminal referral. I think that's likely. If the rule of law says you can attempt a coup as long as you fail and you won't be held responsible, that is way more dangerous for this country than some you know, fear of short-term violence or riots in the street. Kinzinger making the point there that it is up to the DOJ and not the committee to impose real consequences for those who sought to overthrow the results of Biden's legitimate 2020 election victory. And that investigation appears to be accelerating. We now know that when the Justice Department issued those 40 subpoenas to Trump and his aides and allies, according to The Times, investigators also seized two cell phones from Trump advisors, quote, Federal agents with court-authorized search warrants took phones last week from Boris Epstein, an in-house counsel who helps coordinate Mr. Trump's legal efforts, and Mike Roman, a campaign strategist who was the director of Election Day operations for the Trump campaign in 2020. All of that is a big deal. The Justice Department is reportedly obtaining search warrants to seize cell phones of Trump allies, issuing lots and lots of subpoenas as of last week, and now we are less than 60 days to the election. We have hit that all-important marker of less than two months to the midterms, where the department has long-standing practice of not taking public investigative steps in a politically sensitive case so close to Election Day. But here we are. The DOJ is not showing any signs of slowing down. Today, NBC's own Ken Delanian asked the head of the Justice Department's criminal investigation if he could say anything to help the public better understand the flurry of investigative activity in the last week dealing with Trump's associates. The attorney general shared that it is important for us to preserve all relevant evidence in that investigation and any other investigation. Uh, And otherwise, we will continue to speak through the work in the filings of the Department of Justice importance of preserving evidence, you say? You have my attention. Joining us now is Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Matt, thanks for being here tonight. Of course. So 40 subpoenas. I mean, I think just the number alone, the timing alone, well, not alone, together, those things seem deeply meaningful in terms of the scope of this DOJ investigation into January 6th. How do you read all of this activity, again, in this politically sensitive time before the midterms? I think it's clear that there is now a full circle DOJ investigation into everything surrounding Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election, from any nexus to the violence that happened on January 6th, to the way he raised money and spent it potentially fraudulently through his super PAC, to his attempts to to impose alternative slates of electors and pressure the vice president into accepting them. I think the department crossed an important threshold in June when we learned that they took the, the cell phones, they seized the cell phones of Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman. Up until that date, it wasn't certain that the department, or there's at least there were no public signs that the department was investigating anything other than the violence at the Capitol. But once they crossed that threshold, I think there was no other path forward than what we're seeing now, which is first subpoenas, then people coming before the grand jury, and ultimately the department having to make a decision of whether to bring any indictments. So, the, I mean, we're talking about all of it here, right? It's 
the Save America PAC. It's the fake slates of electors. It's the pressuring election officials. All of this is on the table for the DOJ investigation, you think? Yes, all of it is on it. And one of the important things to remember is that there are a number of potential witnesses and potential subjects. Obviously, we saw 40 people who received subpoenas in the last few days. I don't think we should believe that's the end of the department's subpoenas. It's not. It's probably just the beginning. These were probably subpoenas for documents, and you will see grand jury subpoenas coming. And these witnesses will, is, will have overlapping pieces of information and potentially overlapping criminal liability. So when you see the department looking at multiple threads of investigation, you can see how those might interact with each other, where a witness who has criminal liability in one area but information about another area may feel pressure to cooperate with the Justice Department and tell, you know, if, for example, you're a subject in the, false, the fake elector scheme, but you have information about the fraudulent fundraising, you come in and cooperate, you cooperate about everything. So you can see pretty quickly how the department and would try to build this investigation along multiple paths. Just lots of pressure points for all the right. officials and allies who are being subpoenaed here. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember at the outset of the January 6th uh, hearings, there was so much uh, pressure, public outcry about Merrick Garland and whether he was going to pursue any of this. It now appears that the January 6th committee and the DOJ are very much in line with one another in a way that they haven't been up until now, it feels like. Yeah, they certainly are. And I think the question is, is it continues to be what happened, what turned the Justice Department yeah. on in, in June. If you talk to people at the Justice Department who they won't tell you anything about their investigation, of course, it's appropriate, but they will express frustration that in their minds, people who ought to know better, people who used to be in the department and now sit outside, were criticizing them for apparent inaction. Um, all of us who have been in the Justice Department are familiar with the, the, the circumstance where you are doing things, but you have to keep it quiet. You get right. criticized for it, but you can't defend yourself. So they've always felt like they were investigating aggressively and just couldn't say so. And now we see the evidence of it. So what I mean, what happens here? Because we have the DOJ investigation into the Beach Club papers, as I, I think we are wont to call it down in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and we have this DOJ investigation into January 6th, dueling investigations. We have, um, you know, Dick Durbin is saying that the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to investigate some of the allegations put forth in Jeffrey Berman's book about the way the Trump Justice Department was used there. I mean, there is an inordinate amount of pressure on Merrick Garland to do something and maybe offer a criminal indictment of a former president. What happens here and how untenable is his position given sort of institutional norms? Yeah, look, he just has to do what he's promised to do since day one, since his confirmation hearing, which is to follow the facts and follow the law, not not uh, false sway to political pressure. And I think the way he's comported himself, the way he has been such a cautious, conservative attorney general, really more than any of his predecessors in recent times is going to serve him well now when he's really navigating these these tough waters and making tough decisions. I, I do think in, in term, you know, at, at the same time, he doesn't have to listen to the pressure. He, of course, feels it. And in a way, the Mar-a-Lago case has delivered to him a much easier choice to go forward. I, I think if you look at the two cases, um, it is the much simpler case. I've always personally believed that it, the easiest charges to bring against Donald Trump would be charges that other people have been prosecuted and convicted for in the past, not something novel like all the January 6th like charges would be. Like inciting a riot at the Capitol? Yeah, I mean, obviously no one's ever been prosecuted for a coup before in this country for, ob for, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, those would be novel charges and would be, you know, not to say that you couldn't sustain them, but they would be vulnerable to potential challenges on appeal. And with this Supreme Court, who knows what would happen? 
The unlawful retention of classified documents and obstructing investigation to them is something multiple people have gone to jail for. It's a much easier case to bring. I also think it's likelier to be on a faster track, both because of the because it already appears to be further along and because the legal issues are much more simple. And so maybe that is the indictment that Merrick Garland seeks and then can put the January 6th stuff on ice. Not put it on ice, but work out the more complicated one on a longer time frame. All right, Matt Miller, we'll be watching. Former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time tonight. Still ahead, one name stands out on Team Trump's list of possible special masters and not in a good way. There's a hint. It has to do with his law firm. New York Times business investigations editor David Enrich has just written a book about that very same law firm and its extraordinary work to enshrine conservative policy and help Donald Trump. He will join me live to talk about it. That is ahead. Stay with us. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. As we mentioned, there are new developments in the ongoing court battle over the classified documents found in former President Trump's Florida Beach Club. Last week, the Justice Department and the Trump legal team each submitted two names for potential candidates to be the special master, the person who will review documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department put forward two former federal judges, people whom they felt could play the role of impartial document referee. The Trump team also put forward two names, a former federal judge and a Florida-based lawyer. Now, the Justice Department has signaled that it is willing to accept one of the Trump team's picks. In a court filing last night, department lawyers suggested that they could see their way to accepting Trump's choice of former federal judge Raymond Deary to be that special master. Why would the Justice Department suggest it could accept one of Trump's candidates and not the other? Well, we really don't know. But it could be because Trump's other candidate for the special master job has two words on his CV that are a big red flag. The words are Jones Day. Trump's special master candidate is Paul Huck Jr., and he's a former partner at that corporate mega law firm. Jones Day is one of the largest law firms in the country. And like most big law firms in this country, it's old. It's been around for nearly 130 years. But what sets Jones Day apart from America's other big white shoe law firms is that it spent the last six years serving the interests of one client in particular, Donald Trump. And in return, Donald Trump has done his part to serve Jones Day. 
New York Times business investigations editor David Enrich has just written a new book called Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corporate Corruption of Justice. In it, Enrich reveals how Jones Day made its way into Trump's orbit. He traces the firm's history with Trump back to the beginnings of his first campaign, when Jones Day decided to take on Trump as a client. In return, Trump gave Jones Day total control over his plans to appoint new judges, conservative judges, to the courts. Most importantly, the Supreme Court. Now, this was important not just because, well, you know, it's a Supreme Court, but because candidate Trump's list would become a crucial turning point for his campaign. Mitch McConnell would explain years later that, quote, the list reassured a whole lot of Republicans that, okay, maybe Trump was doing fundraisers for Schumer four years ago, but it looks like he may be okay on something that's really important to us. The creation of the list, McConnell added, became the single biggest issue bringing him, bringing our side in line behind him, him as in Trump. After Trump became president, he appointed Jones Day lawyer, a guy named Don McGahn, to be the White House counsel. And immediately, McGahn began using his role to fill the federal courts with Jones Day approved judges. Enrich writes, quote, while McGahn was in the White House, there had been a saying among some Republicans at Jones Day, no vacancy left behind. It was a nod, of course, to how many conservatives McGahn was embedding in the judiciary. But it had a more specific close to home meaning, too. Jones Day lawyers were among those ending up on the bench. And there was more to the relationship between Trump and Jones Day than just appointing judges. Enrich writes in his book, quote, inside and outside the government, Jones Day had arguably done as much as any private institution to help Trump and his administration. It wasn't just defending the campaign against the Mueller investigation, and it wasn't just McGahn's Herculean efforts to protect the president and pack the courts. Once and future Jones Day lawyers had helped reshape a smorgasbord of federal bodies, the Agriculture, Commerce and Labor Departments, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and of course, the Justice Department, which had been transformed into a political appendage of the White House. The relationship between these two entities, the Trump administration and the law firm Jones Day, is really unlike anything we have seen from any other big law firm during any other presidential administration. In just four years, Jones Day basically wedded itself to Trump and his movement. The firm even represented Trump in some of his efforts to stop votes from being counted on election night in 2020, asking the courts to reject certain mail-in votes in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, that didn't ultimately work, but the relationship didn't end after Trump lost. This is what Enrich writes after Trump's election defeat. Jones Day was poised to become a refuge for battle-scarred veterans of the Trump administration who, given the president's toxicity, would be unwelcome at many law firms. The ensuing two-year exodus from the administration to Jones Day would further alter the identity of the 126-year-old law firm. We are watching the legacy of Trump and Jones Day play out each and every day when the Supreme Court ends the right to safe and legal abortion and with each new case that lands before a Trump appointed federal judge. As we look forward, what might it mean to have one of the world's most dominant law firms in Trump's corner as he looks to regain power and undermine American democracy? I'll ask David Enrich that and so much more coming up next. What do one of America's biggest tobacco companies, one of America's biggest opioid manufacturers, and a man named Donald Trump all have in common? Well, for starters, they all have the same attorneys. 
In his new book, Servants of the Dam, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice, New York Times Business Investigations editor David Enrich details the history of how Jones Day, one of America's biggest law firms, turned a talent for representing unsavory clients into a political windfall by aligning with the most unsavory client of them all, Donald Trump. As Enrich notes, Jones Day had been known for decades to be a tireless and extremely successful defender of some of America's worst corporate actors. The firm helped R.J. Reynolds sow doubts about the dangers of cigarettes and helped Purdue Pharma protect its patents for OxyContin. It made a name for itself, raking in billions a year in fees from these tobacco, opioid, gun and oil companies. But with the presidency of Donald Trump, the firm took on another calling, reshaping the federal judiciary for generations and working inside the White House to influence national policy. As Enrich writes in his book, for Jones Day, it marked the moment the firm achieved a position of a unique historical dominance in Washington after decades of swelling ambition. What transpired at the dawn of the Trump era was an extraordinary transfer of talent from a single law firm to a new administration. Joining us now is David Enrich, business investigations editor at The New York Times and author of the aforementioned book, Servants of the Damned. It is an excellent and very thoroughly reported read. David, congrats on the publication day. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, How did this happen? I mean, we know we know that Jones Day always leaned conservative, but it gets supercharged in the in the run up to the election in 2016. And of course, once Trump is president for people who haven't yet read the book, can you explain that metamorphosis and offer more details on the evolution of this white shoe law firm? Yeah, well, this started years before Trump even came onto the political scene. Jones Day, uh, under its managing partner, a guy named Steve Brogan, who is a very conservative man, started taking on not just clients, which is what lawyers traditionally do, but also causes. And you know, one of their big issues uh, under Obama was attacking Obamacare. They launched multiple legal challenges trying to undermine the new health care law. And the firm increasingly had become a home for conservative Republican lawyers that wouldn't have been quite as powerful at other establishments in Washington and around the country. And so in 2015, they hired, or sorry, 2014, they hired a group of hotshot Republican lawyers to start a new practice that was devoted to helping Republicans get elected. And one of these people in particular, Don McGahn, would soon become a household name. And one of the first clients he took on in early 2015 was the Trump campaign. And he and Trump really saw eye to eye on a lot of issues. And I think more than that, he saw Trump, who really wasn't burdened by particularly strong beliefs on a lot of Burdened core by issues. particularly strong <laughs> beliefs is one word for it, Yeah, David. you know, I sometimes speak in euphemisms. And McGahn saw this, saw Trump, I think, largely as a vessel to achieve many of his, McGahn's, uh, amb- career ambitions, which included remaking the judiciary, included dismantling what McGahn liked to disparagingly refer to as the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And Trump was uh, very happy to have people like McGahn and Jones Day on board because it lent a lot of establishment credibility to him at a time when not very many people were taking his campaign seriously. It is the moment when Trump sort of convinces skeptical establishment Republicans when he talks about this list of who he would appoint, right? right? And McGahn is the linchpin. He's the guy connecting sort of the Federalist Society the Federal Society and their long laundry list of conservative justices and judges 
to the Trump administration, and then the list is used. That, that's exactly right. And it's not just McGahn, though. I mean, it's a bunch of other lawyers at the firm, and it's the firm itself. I mean, the list was hatched in at a meeting in Jones Day's offices on Capitol Hill. And they brought together people like Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society and a bunch of Republican lawmakers. And that's literally where this took place. And then when McGahn becomes White, the first White House counsel with Trump, he then imports from Jones Day many, many lawyers to surround himself, not just in the White House counsel's office and elsewhere in the White House, but throughout the federal government, in particular at the Justice Department. And together, they, all of these lawyers who had just come from Jones Day, really go out of their way to, add, to really just completely reconstitute the federal judiciary in a way that is completely aligned with the vision of groups like the Federalist Society. And it is just a very different uh, court. Than and yeah, and we're seeing the harvest of that on a daily that, basis. Right. But what Bear's mentioning is this is not just sort of a whole bunch of conservative lawyers doing a whole bunch of conservative lawyering. This is like lawyering like we haven't seen before. The viciousness, the ferocity, the tactics that they use. I'll draw everyone's attention to an example um, in and around the Pennsylvania vote count after the 2020 election. Jones Day and its lawyers were trying to stop votes from being counted, not because they thought there was something improper underway. There was zero evidence of that, but because they detected an opportunity to use the law to give their side a political edge. In the firm's calculus, the consequences, fanning fears of fraud that would two months later erupt into a violent assault on democracy, those consequences were immaterial. I mean, this is they're practicing law in a way that's now become the hallmark in a lot of ways of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. But this seems like the origin story for some of that. I, I think that's exactly right. And the origin story for Jones Day learning these tactics is that they, for decades, had really mastered these skills representing companies like RJR and just going to these extraordinary lengths to not only win in court and protect their client, but to just steamroll their opponents in ways that I think a lot of outside experts and, frankly, some of the people I've spoken to at Jones Day felt were really pushing the envelope in a way that left a lot of people uncomfortable. And so you then see these tactics that have been kind of the norm in corporate litigation being brought to bear in the political realm and in litigation like we saw in Pennsylvania in 2020. And surprise, surprise, they're using a lot of the same kind of smash mouth tactics that have been perfected in the corporate arena. It's such an important line to draw between what the law firms did in and around big tobacco and and guns and applying those lessons and those tactics in the political world. And such a dangerous, I, I will call it a chapter, but it could be a dangerous future for American politics. What is also stunning is the, I mean, calling it a revolving door between this conservative law firm and the Trump White House is euphemistic. It does, it's an understatement. There is no analog on the left, is there? I mean, I know there's, there are, you know, judicial watch groups of, of a kind. There's an interest on the left in terms of appointing more liberal justices, but there is not the same ecosystem system that exists on the right. No, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything equal to it. And I don't think I don't think prior to Jones Day doing this, there had been any equal on the right either. And this is and again, this is brought to bear not just in terms of uh, McGahn masterminding the remaking of the federal courts, but it's brought to bear on behalf of Jones Day's corporate clients who have business before the federal government in a way that would be kind of funny if it weren't so, I think, troubling in a lot of ways. And and there is an example that I detail in the book involving Walmart, which was under criminal and civil investigation from the Trump administration Justice Department. And it's a Justice Department that was staffed at the senior levels in large part by Jones Day lawyers. Jones Day is representing Walmart. 
and goes to its former contacts inside the Trump administration and does its darndest to derail that investigation in a way that left federal prosecutors, including some who had been appointed by Trump, just absolutely aghast at what they were saying. It is it is shocking and very important reporting that you have in this book. Um, David Enrich, business investigations editor at The New York Times. Thank you. Congrats on the book. Thank you so much, Alex. Author of the new book, Servants of the Damned. Thank you again. We'll be right back. One quick programming note before we go. Tomorrow, I will be joined by Georgia's Democratic candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, right here on this show. I'll be talking to her about voter suppression efforts and what it will take to install a Democrat in the Georgia governor's mansion. You will not want to miss it. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.